The United Church of God believes and teaches that God is the sovereign of the universe, that he exists without beginning and without end, that he is supreme above all. God is spirit and cannot be, cannot be contained or described in terms of atoms or molecules or even mechanical processes like math or physics, God exists in a different realm from human beings. We're made up of flesh, we're made up of atoms and molecules, and we are subject to mechanical processes like physics. John 4 verse 24 tells us God is spirit. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50 tells us that flesh and blood, what we are, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's this vast difference, vast gulf, if you will, between who and what we humans are compared to who and what God is. And full comprehension and understanding of God is out of reach. It's just a little bit too much for us. But what understanding that we do have, all our ideas and our experiences with God and about God, are based on God's revelation, his word, his written word, the Bible. The Bible shows us God as the Father, and then as the Son, who is Jesus Christ. And this is how God wishes to be understood. This is what he has given us to understand him by, through the means of a family relationship. There's a father, there's a son. But let's not think of it in terms of biology, for example, like who came first. That's not what I want to focus on today, and I don't think that's what God intends at all. I know it's not what God intends. Rather, our understanding should be understood in terms of authority. Authority that is expressed in love and submission to that authority that is expressed in obedience, filled with love and with respect. The title that I have for the message today is The Authority of God the Father. The Authority of God the Father. The fact the idea, the concept, the understanding that there is a father and a son was not previously understood in the Old Testament scriptures. We know this now, and we can look back with hindsight, 2020 vision. Ah, yes, now we know. But it was not understood by the people who Jesus was talking to, who the first century church was talking to. It is a teaching, and it is an understanding that is passed along to you, was passed along to me, by the Church of God, who got it from Jesus Christ himself. And that understanding is extremely important for us today. And I want to take it in a direction that goes beyond just understanding of words and concepts, but gets to an ethical and moral lesson that we can derive from understanding a bit more about the Father and the Son. And I'm going to come back to that more toward the end, but I want you to know in advance and kind of keep it in your mind that that's where we're going to go. That there's a reason for knowing this. Go with me to John 6, verse 46. Jesus speaking here. He says, No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God, speaking of himself. Only he has seen the Father. Jesus is telling them, and he's telling us through the word, that no one knew this stuff before he taught it, before Jesus taught and gave instruction and insight and understanding. People did not, they didn't get this. Go to 1 John 1, verse 1 through 4. 
John, writing to the church, says this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, speaking of himself and the other disciples, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy more complete. That understanding of the Father and the Son is passed along to you through the testimony of the apostles and through the teaching of the church. Nobody sees or understands this important truth about God unless they're taught. It's an understanding that comes through instruction. We don't learn this about God based on logic or reasoning. And plenty of people have had lots of fancy ideas about God and what he may or may not be and what he can or cannot be based on human logic, human reasoning. We don't learn this truth about God through observation of the universe by looking at the beauty of creation or the cosmos or whatever. Nope. We don't learn this truth about God through our own personal religious experience either. We learn this truth about the Father and the Son through instruction. When you take logic, reasoning, when you take observation of natural things, the natural universe or religious experience, and and you don't have that instruction, well, of their own, those things lead to some very fancy ideas, but ultimately end up in failure and confusion. We learn the truth about God, which is very important, based on instruction, which comes from him. And it's not a subject that is just metaphysical pondering. No, it is not. It is a teaching that has a practical application which guides moral behavior. Because the truth about the Father and the Son, the truth about the oneness of God, contains within it an understanding about authority and therefore about submission. Those two words sometimes make people kind of flinch a little bit. Oh, authority, oh, submission. Especially in the United States. I haven't lived everywhere in the world. I, I only know what I know, but it seems like in the United States we have a very uh, aggrandized version of our own personal freedoms and the idea of submission to authority and authority is like, oh, we have to, okay. But they are fundamental understandings that uh, are a guide to life. Because if we don't understand authority, we don't understand the truth about authority and submission, we do not have peace. We do not have joy. And all our visions about uh, eternal life are fatally flawed. They are going to fail. I mentioned that the understanding of God the Father is very important. Well, we begin with the Old Testament. We begin with the Old Testament. And I said that it was something that Jesus taught. When he taught it, Jesus used Old Testament scriptures to back up his teaching. And, you know, if you think about his relationship with these people, he had to appeal to the scriptures. And when he's appealing to scriptures, he's appealing to authority. So Jesus used the Old Testament scriptures to back up his teaching. It was something new, something they didn't understand. But he could also point back to the Old Testament scriptures, which they were all very familiar with, and say, look at this. Turn with me to Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand 
until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus used this scripture when he was teaching, and he had people coming at him saying, What are you talking about? What are you teaching? He pointed them back to this scripture. And he used it, and it's recorded in Matthew, and it's recorded in Mark, and it's recorded in Luke. All of those Gospels show Jesus using this verse to point out you've got two beings here. Two beings considered God who are interacting with one another. And so he pointed it out to them. And this is one of those verses where he quotes this verse and they all just shut up because they had no answer for it. What he's saying, what he's showing here is you've got two beings considered God interacting with one another showing that there's more to God than the Jewish people knew about, than they had previously thought. It would have been very a big idea for them to look into, to swallow. It's also recorded in Acts 2, verse 34. This would be an example of the church. This would be Peter preaching and using this same verse, uh, Psalm 110, verses 1 through 2, uh, using the same verse to carry forward that same teaching. Jesus taught it, then the church picks it up and they moved it forward and carried it and passed it on to others. It's a teaching that we, the church, learned from Jesus. It's quoted again in Hebrews 1 verse 13. That time, a little different usage, clarifying that this is not a reference to angels, but to the Son. So it's a very important scripture. It was used quite a bit to make this important point. There's more to God in the Old Testament than people thought. But we have this fuller understanding because of the teaching we've received from Jesus, from the New Testament scriptures, from the church. Now, the presence of the two, the presence of the Father and the Son, is implicit in Scripture from the very beginning. So let's go to the very beginning. Go to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word God, if you look it up in the original language, is Elohim. And I think probably most of us have heard some discussion of this word, Elohim, and what it means. Anyone not heard about Elohim? Gotcha. Got one there. Okay. The Hebrew word Elohim is used. And it's a plural form. All right? It's a plural, meaning, you know, multiple. Like we would say, instead of girl, we'd say girls. Okay? So it's plural. And it's the plural for a Hebrew word, which is Eloah. So Eloah, Elohim, that's how they pluralized words. And it can be used, and it is used in scriptures to refer to God, capital G, the God we know, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It can also be used to talk about little g God, you know, the non-gods, you know, your false gods. Because it's, a, it's not the name of God. Elohim is not the name of God. It's just the word for God, like uh, deity we might use in English. We're in Genesis. Let's go to verse 26. So we see there that word Elohim is referring to more than one being. Verse 26 says, Then God said, and it's the same word there, Elohim, Let us, us, make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now, that adds to what we've already read. We've got these two beings, all right? There's communication between them. They're interacting with one another. These two Eloah, they're interacting with one another from the very beginning. And notice the use of the word, the pronouns, us, we, our, which refer to the Elohim. And for centuries, people read these scriptures and did not understand that that meant father and son. How could they? 
I didn't mean that for them. Sometimes people will make an objection to this reading of the Old Testament. Some say that, ah, come on, you're making too much of a word there. This is merely God speaking in the imperial we. You know, Queen Victoria might say, we are not amused, right? The imperial we. Or God is merely speaking to the divine council that's gathered around him. You know, it's pictured in other places in the, uh, in the Bible, the heavenly throne room. In other words, he's talking to these angels and archangels and stuff, right? That's what he means when he says we. However, that can't be right. The Elohim create human beings in their image. Human beings are not created in the image of God and angels. We are created in the image of God alone. I mean, angels, well, they're thinking, sentient, immortal beings. Yep. They're composed of spirit. But if you think about it, in their natural state, they are depicted as having a very different image from God. Think, for example, of the visions of Ezekiel, where we hear the seraphim, the cherubim described, uh, you know, wheels within wheels and multiple eyes all over the wheels and cloven hooves and multiple faces and so forth, right? Whereas when the scriptures make any kind of an allusion towards the appearance of God. And I say that very guardedly because clearly any description of God that involves a description of his appearance is going to be very limited. and should not be taken as a complete description of God. But when we do hear about God and the characteristics of God, the visible characteristics of God, they're presented in a way that accentuates the similarity with human beings who are created in God's image focuses on the traits that he has in common with humanity. The Old Testament looks at God in many different ways. I'm going to focus on two. God as creator, and then God of Israel, God of Israel. We've been talking a little bit about God as creator. And when we want to talk about God as creator, where do we go? We go to the first verse of the Bible, right? The very first thing about God that the Old Testament scriptures want you and me to know is that God is the creator of all things. But clarification of what this means, and if you think about clarification of the Elohim who are operating here, comes through the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Go there, please. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Yet for us, this is speaking to the church and about the church, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Creation, which we read about there in Genesis, is the work of the Father and the Son together. We get this understanding through the teaching of the New Testament. Go to Colossians 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the member of the God family, the Son, who goes forth and makes stuff happen. <laughs> who performs the acts, if you will, based on the will and the authority of the Father. Because they're working together on this. And his will, the will of the Son, is in complete agreement and harmony with the will of the Father. Now let's go to Hebrews 1, verse 8 and 9. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, 
has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Here's another scripture where we see God interacting with God. This affirms that the Son is as much God as the Father is God. He's not a lesser being. And this comes into this will come into play when I circle around to the the moral application in our lives. He is not a lesser being. Also, we see in the scripture that there's a distinction between the two because there's this communication, there's information being passed between them. Okay? So there's a distinction between the two. God is speaking to God. And the nature of the relationship, again, as I mentioned before, is not to be understood, even though it's spoken of the Father and the Son, it's not defined by who came first, but rather it is based on authority, which is what we see happening in this scripture here. The Father gives authority and dominion to the Son because it's his to give. So it's a distinction based on authority and submission to that authority. Now, note, this is a quotation from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. So it's another, yet another place from the Old Testament scripture where two beings classified and described and referred to as God are interacting with one another. The other main way that the Old Testament scriptures show God to us, present God to us, and there's many, many ways, but I'm just trying to narrow it down to some really very important ones, is the God of Israel. I think that's the most, probably, I'm just guessing because I haven't done run the numbers on it, but I'm going to say that's one of the most repeated and dominant aspects of God that we get from the Old Testament. That identification that he makes, that he makes, through his identification with Israel, that nation that appeared on a place, on a map, an actual map, an actual country, at an actual time in human history. And in this way, God becomes known within the context of human history. Go with me to Exodus 3, verse 13. Exodus 3, verse 13 through 15. And this is Moses God's sending him to go and talk with Israel in bondage in Egypt. And, God, and Moses is kind of saying, well, who am I going to tell them that I'm re- coming representing? Like, you know, what's going to give me credibility on this? And in verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What, what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's, that's the Yahweh saying, if you will. Basically, it means the self-existent one. You know, I'm not dependent on any, anything or anyone or any force for life. I am who I am. And this is what you're, you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Then he goes on and he adds to this. Then God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. God identifies himself as the I am, and he speaks about his his nature, if you will, the self-existing one. But he also wants to be understood as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel. And I put it to you that God wishes to be known through this identification with Israel, because he wants to be known through his actions and his deeds, his, his actions of redemption towards Israel, and through the laws and the judgments, and the statutes, and the prophecies, and the records of his deeds that he entrusted to them. I mentioned this last time I was here. To the Jews were given the oracles of God. God wants to be identified with that. So that we can make that connection, we can connect the dots. That the true God, the living God, is the one who comes to us through the word by this connection with Israel. And I believe that's what Jesus meant when he said, salvation is of the Jews. Our understanding of God begins with the Old Testament. Begins with the Old Testament scriptures. 
But it is through the New Testament scriptures that we are taught and we are given understanding about the meaning contained within the Old Testament scriptures. Go to 1 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4. Writing to the church here, some information is passed along. Verse 3, they, that's a reference to Israel, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. The member of the God family who interacted with Israel, as recorded in the Old Testament, is the same member of the God family who entered the world, became flesh, and took on the name Jesus. And this is an important understanding, a very important understanding of who and what Jesus really was. When you read the Gospels and you read about what he did and what he said and the interactions that he had with people and the conversations and the things that he said, they make more sense when you understand that he was the rock that was with Israel as they went through their history, their ups and downs, their ins and outs. He was the one interacting with Israel. It's a very big part of understanding who Jesus was was, who he is. Very big deal. I said previously, though, that the, the father was unknown. When Jesus came on the scene, when he was teaching, when he was preaching, people did not know about the father. We know now, in hindsight, because we have been taught. But people didn't know that then. Go back to John 6, verse 46, just by way of refresher. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. In other words, he's saying, me. Only he has seen the Father. Israel had never actually had any direct dealings with the Father. There are references in the Old Testament which show us, yes, there's a God interacting with God. God talking with God. Clearly that is the Father. We see that in hindsight, but... People didn't know that. And Israel had never actually interacted with the Father. All those mighty deeds and the judgments and the blessings and the prophecies, all that found in the Old Testament had actually been him. It had actually been him. The Logos, the Word, the Son. And he came on the scene and he was teaching them. So let me ask you this. What purpose did it serve for Jesus to get into what I'm going to say is a somewhat abstract discussion of the Father and the Son, the Elohim, or maybe diving into Psalm 110. What, 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 what purpose did it serve? Was it just Jesus' way of saying, hey, I know stuff you don't know. So I'm the big cheese. I put it to you that it did have a very important purpose. And you might ask the question, when you hear a message like this, what, 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 what purpose does that serve in my life to know this stuff? What purpose does it serve? What purpose does it have for you or me? I think there are two ways of approaching it. I'm going to go through them briefly. One is what I'm going to call um, an intellectual understanding. Intellectual doctrinal. The other is ethical and moral is where I want to go. Let me knock off the intellectual first, because I've kind of been talking along those lines so far. It's all been kind of head knowledge so far. Why would it make a difference for them on a doctrinal basis to know this stuff about the Father and Son? And why is it important for us? Doctrinally speaking, knowledge, head knowledge-wise. It was important for them to have this information so that they could understand how God could be with them Jesus, and yet still enthroned in heaven, the Father. Another example. How can you wrap your mind around the idea that Jesus, who was God, could be dead in the tomb? 
and yet raised again to life by God, who was alive and enthroned in heaven. Those are just two of many. And those are what I'm characterizing as knowledge. You know, things that you, yeah, it all kind of makes sense and you're able to put it together and slip all the pieces into place. And, you know, it's good to know. That's good. But there's another aspect to it that I want to focus on and dwell on here, and that is the ethical and moral aspect of it. Understanding God as the Father and Jesus as the Son opens up for all of us important truths about oneness, unity, and authority, and submission. Lessons that we can apply in our lives and should apply in our lives as we prepare for the kingdom of God. Because without righteous authority, and without submission to righteous authority, we will never have peace, and we will never have joy, and we will never have unity, and all that other great stuff that we like to think about and meditate upon when we think about the kingdom of God. So let's take a look at Christ's submission to authority, which is built into this understanding that we have. Go to John 1, verse 1. You knew I was going to end up at this scripture at some point. Here we are. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. This is Jesus. You can read on and you see that John makes the connection very clear. Verse 14, I think, is where it does. This is very, uh, it's important to understand because Jesus had all the godly attributes of the Father. He was God, with God, okay? Um, he always existed. He was always eternal. He was all-powerful, all-knowing. He was filled with glory. He was righteous. He was perfect, loving, merciful, etc. He had the attributes of God, did he not? Yet within the context of their relationship, the Word, the Logos, the Son, submits himself to the authority of the Father and the Father's perfect will. Go to John 14, verse 23. And we'll read through verse 24. Jesus' words here. He says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father, who sent me. Drop down to verse 28. You heard me say, I am going away and that I'm coming back to you. And if you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And that word greater, I look into the, look into the meaning of that. Take one of your little, whatever tool you have to look into Bible words. And the word there, greater, one of the definitions of it because it's not talking about the God that, that the Father is bigger than me or the Father is more powerful than me. One of the definitions of the word is authority. The Father has greater authority than me. And here is a foundational principle on how we get along. How do we get along? That's an important question, don't you think? How do we get along? And I don't just mean this congregation. I mean humanity. How do we get along? And when I ran that phrase through my head, something popped in, and it'll, it'll date me. Uh, it'll show how old I am. Because a quote came to my mind, and it was a quote that goes back to 1992. 
That's 29 years ago. And on May 1st, in 1992, there was a man named Rodney King. And he said something that rang out across the whole country. He said, people, I just want to say, can't we all get along? Can't we all get along? And it was, it was you know, for my generation, it was important. Everybody heard about it, knew about it. Anyone? Am I the only one? Has anyone heard about that before? Oh, I know you have. <laughs> yeah. The younger folks might not have heard it, but what my, for my generation, it was a public cry because it went out everywhere. We didn't have as many uh, TV channels back then. Everybody heard it. It went out as a public cry of despair in the face of violence and injustice and human sin. And <laughs> 30 years later, almost 30 years later, we are no closer to answering that question. Sadly, I mean, I look around and it appears to me that we've just descended even further into anger and frustration and confusion. And I put it to you that God's word asks that same question and provides an answer. Go to Amos 3, verse 3. Amos 3, verse 3. Can two walk together unless they are in agreement? Can two walk together without being in agreement? Different translations put it different ways. But it means the same. Can two walk together unless they're agreed to do so? I mean, you know, you think about walking together with someone. You want to go for a walk? Yeah, well, which way do you want to go? I want to go this way. I want to go that way. You have to be in agreement. Now, that's an easy decision. You know, you come to a form of consensus, but usually it involves someone submitting to the other person, right? Okay, we'll go that way. Sometimes decisions are not as easy because they're more consequential, and it comes down to a matter of authority. You can't agree. How do you agree? Authority. We don't always agree on things. And to get along... Answer that question, how do we get along? We have to be in agreement. And one of the first points of agreement must be on the matter of authority. And Jesus agreed with the Father. He agreed with the Father all the way to death by crucifixion. He was in agreement with the Father. And he was able to walk with him down that path because he was in agreement with him based on authority. So let's talk a little bit more about getting along. Go with me to Philippians 2. This is the moral aspect of it that I was talking about before. We take this head knowledge, the Father and the Son, the nature of God. What does it mean for us? How does it affect how we live, how we breathe, and how we get along? Well, here you go. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Let's, let's jump in. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, as I mentioned earlier, as much God as God was. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. I believe the New King James says a form of robbery, which means it wasn't, he didn't consider it something to be held onto for dear life. You know, I am not going to let go. Ah! That was not his approach. He did not consider equality with God something to be grabbed onto and held on for dear life. No. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Even though the Son, 
Christ was equal in form and essence. He had all the godness. You know, he, had, he was. He had all that. He was equal in form of existence. He set the example for us, for all who live, and for all time, of willingly submitting himself to the other member of the God family, which is the Father. And in this way, and I want you to ponder this and think about it, take it home with you and think about it a little bit, okay? And in this way, both the proper wielding of authority and the proper submission to authority are found in the character of God which is somewhat of a paradox. But knowledge of the Father and the Son makes it accessible and understandable. The proper wielding of authority is exemplified by the Father. The proper submission to authority is exemplified by the Son. This is the mind of God. So when God instructs you or me and says something like, yield yourself to authority, He's not asking you to do anything that he does not do himself. So wrap your mind around that. The father wields his authority with love and honor towards the son, as we just read. Therefore, God exalted him. He wields his authority with love and honor toward the son and in this way sets the ideal pattern for any who might find themselves in a position of authority. Now, for his part, the son submits to the father's authority with love, not resentment. <sighs> He's always telling me what to do. No. The son submits to the father's authority with love, not resentment, with respect and with obedience to his will. So much so that Jesus can, in all honesty and forthrightness, say things like, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Here's a good one for you. My commands are the commands of the Father. My will is to do the will of the Father. Now, God wants you, me, all of us, he wants it of everybody, he wants you to learn to be one, one with one another. And he says, even as the Father and the Son are one. We read that when we come around to the spring holy days. We read that every year. I know we do. We read through John. We read through the chapters of John where he talks about this and he gives his final prayer. And he, in the final prayer, he says, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. It's an example for us of how to get along. He also wants us to be one with him and with others. And that's the future. That's, that's eternity. To help us learn this way of thinking. Again, this gets down to the ethical, the moral, and the application in our lives. To learn this way of thinking, God gives us Living lessons. Living lessons. Things that we can experience and by experience do and understand and learn. Doesn't mean we're perfect right off the bat, but we are here to learn. What do we have? Well, we have our family. We have the family to learn these lessons. We have the church of God to learn these lessons. And this one will, this one's hard. We have our interaction with human government. Let's take a look at some scriptures on those. Go with me to Ephesians 5, verse 25. Let's take a look at the family. Our instructions for family life and getting along and having a good family are based on authority. It says, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives. So there's that loving, loving authority. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, 
and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one, one flesh. And this is a profound mystery. And when he says mystery, he doesn't mean you can't understand it. He means this is something that is being revealed to you. That's what mystery means. You wouldn't get it unless you were instructed about it. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So the children in there, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. There's the family. And if you think about the family, I was musing on this as I was writing it, and I thought, you know, in, in some ways the, uh, the women learn about authority and submission in a way that's very different from the way men do. And their relationship with their their husband really is a reflection of Jesus' submission. I wouldn't go too far down that road, but it's a very special way that women learn. Men have their ways of learning. Women have theirs. Why does God do it that way? Well, he, he likes diversity. I think he has big things in store for everybody. Go to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 15 through 17. So now we're going to talk about the church. The family, that's kind of built into your, your flesh and blood there, biological. What about the church? Church is a little different, isn't it? Your relationship with the church because, you know, your, your relationship with the church, it's voluntary, right? Church doesn't have a gun to your head. You know, you're, you're, you're free to leave anytime you want. I don't want you to. But your relationship with the church is based on your choice, okay? Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. So there's another place where we learn about this submission to authority, and it's challenging. Because we can leave anytime we want. We get tired of learning. Well, I'm out of here. But God doesn't want us to give up. Now let's take a look at the sticky wicket. Well, they're all sticky wickets, really. Uh, Romans 13. What about human government? <laughs> There's a problem area for you. Uh, Romans 13, verses 1 through 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Ooh. Now, our relationship with human authority is a little different because it's very much arbitrary very, very often ungodly. And it's a place where we very often don't agree with what's going on. Every, anyone agree 100% with everything the government says and does? Raise your hands now. So pay careful attention to these three areas, each of which is worth a sermon of its own. Be careful. Pay attention to how you behave within your family, within the church of God, and within society. Caveat. Now, is this teaching of the church telling you that passive acceptance of all human authority 
will lead us to a human utopia. If we could just get that nailed, everything would work. No. No, no, no. Passive acceptance of all human authority does not lead us to human utopia. Why? Because no human being can supply the perfect, righteous, loving authority that balances out the equation. In Acts 5 verse 29, the apostles were arrested and told, Stop preaching! Stop preaching the truth. And what did they say? We must obey God rather than man. So there's a tension. There's always going to be this tension between human authority and the believer. But you have your marching orders, don't you? About submission and about authority. There will always be tension there because no human husband, uh, no human church leader, and no human government is without its fatal flaw, and its human sin. However, I mean, at present, we have what we need to learn the lessons of submission that will serve us well into eternity. We need, all humanity needs, that fully righteous, perfect, loving authority. And only then will we be able to Fully agree. It's the missing link. And it will come. That's part of the proclamation of the church as well. It will come when Christ returns to administer the will of the Father on earth. But for now, we only see these things, as Paul says, through a glass darkly. Our vision is somewhat obscured. And then, when he returns, we will see it fully then it will be possible for us to answer that question, can we all get along? Then it will be possible for us to walk together in agreement and in peace. And today, we learn, we do our part. We learn our lessons about godly submission. We all have the same marching orders in that regard. To learn about godly submission. And at the appointed time, he will provide the righteous, loving authority for all. It makes the equation work. So conclusion. Submission to righteous authority is the answer. How can we all get along? Can't we all get along? Submission to righteous authority is the answer. And it's the only way. And it's the way of peace. It's the way of joy. It's the way of eternity. And looking into the nature of God, which is what we've been doing today, looking into the reality of the Father and the Son and their manner of interaction with one another is more than clever words and intellectual escapades and proving what I know and what I don't know. It is a practical lesson that answers the moral and ethical question. How can we all get along?